everybody back to our second session. And I'm really excited about this. Uh, if if uh, our second session is half as interesting as the first session, we're going to have a great, great discussion. And knowing the, the people on here, it's going to be a great discussion. Let me just say a couple things. We chose today's date um, for one reason, but now I found out there are two reasons. For one reason, it's the Day of Annunciation. Does everyone know what that is? Yes. Say yes. Good. And, and the reason we, we did that is uh, an, a very interesting example of Christian-Muslim uh, engagement in Lebanon. The Day of Annunciation is a national holiday in Lebanon. And it's the first example, I think the only example, of a bi-religious national holiday in the world. And you'd think, well, Lebanon is what, 35% Christian? Why would they be celebrating the Day of Annunciation? It was picked because the importance of Mary, to obviously to the Christians, but also to the Muslims. And, and people don't realize that Mary, there's more written about Mary in the Quran than there is in the Bible. I, you know that? Sitna Maryam has a whole chapter, a whole surah uh, in the Quran. And it was an, a very interesting and I think innovative step by the Lebanese, the coffee has come, the Lebanese uh, government and both the Christian and Muslim groups to set a date aside to look at our common religious heritage. So uh, I, I think this is very interesting. Our goal is maybe next Annunciation, we'll bring in some people from Lebanon, from Egypt, and from other places who are working to stem this out-migration of Christians. Second thing I want to say, it's also... Today is Greek Independence Day. Greek Independence Day. So that has a lot of implications. And lastly, I'd really like to take this time. We, we thank the, the sponsors, but this conference could not have taken place without the support, leadership of Father Ellis. Father Ellis, thank you so much. <laughs> Father Ellis is the rock that I think sustains the Center for Arab and Islamic Studies. And for people like for me and for Brian, I think, uh, your leadership and your, uh, your dedication is, is inspirational. Thank you, Father. You did all the work. Anne? Thank you very much. Uh, it's delightful to be here. I was teaching at Villanova until the summer of 2004, and Brian was one of my star pupils a decade before that. So. Uh, anyway, so I'm very pleased to be back, and I'll hopefully be back more now that I'm back from nine years in Egypt. Uh, the afternoon panel is historical, but also looking at the relevance of history for today, and the uh, speakers were given several different sort of questions or themes to address, which I'm not quite sure how we're going to do in um, 15 minutes or less each. Uh, one was and of course they can pick and choose among these in a sense. Uh, the Ottoman legacy, the colonial legacy, particularly British and French of course, um, the impact of missionaries and missionaries' educational activities from the West and the reactions to that, um, 
the extent to which Arab Christians in particular participated in and were leaders of Arab nationalist movements, and then finally, uh, what lessons can be drawn from the earlier period useful for today's challenges. Uh, so that's quite a large brief. Um, I will introduce each uh, person right before they speak rather than doing the introductions all at once now because I know if I were in the audience, I wouldn't remember what had been said <laughs> this way you might remember. So um, I would like uh, Heather Sharkey to be the first to speak. She's an associate professor in the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations at the University of Pennsylvania and has graduated from Yale, from Durham University, M M Phil, and PhD from Princeton University. Um, her first book, which was drawn from her dissertation, but of course these things get changed a lot, um, was called Living with Colonialism, Nationalism, and Culture in the Anglo-Egyptian Sudan. Uh, later she had a publication called American Evangelicals in Egypt, Missionary Encounters in an Age of Empire, and she's working now on a book that relates to Muslims, Christians, and Jews in the modern Middle East starting in 1700, and it's a very ambitious uh, product uh, project. She also has uh, co-edited some other publications, and last year she was in Paris at the School of Higher Studies in the Social Sciences, to translate, uh, for an academic year while she was doing her research. So Heather, we welcome. Well, thank you very much for coming today. It's a great honor to be here. I'd like to thank Marwan Crady and Brian Katulis for inviting me, Villanova for sponsoring this event, and also my students at Penn for coming all the way oh, out here. Oh, great, okay, <laughs> Thank you. What I'd like to do in my comments is to provide a, some historical depth uh, to our discussion. And as you'll see, the comments that I raise relate to points that arose during the morning session. So a few years ago, a colleague asked me to write a chapter on the Middle East and North Africa for a book called Introducing World Christianity how it came out, which aimed to survey Christian cultures region by region around the world for a target audience of students in, uh, in colleges and seminaries. And so to gear up for what I knew would be a very challenging task, I decided to take a look at some existing books that were out there for ideas. And what surprised me was that the books that I happened to scan all discussed the Middle East at the outset as the cradle of Christianity and the place where Jesus had lived and died, but then jumped abroad and ignored the Middle East completely after the introduction. So in other words, after setting the stage in the Middle East, these books tended to focus on the spread and development of Christian cultures, first in Europe, then in the Americas, before considering the buoyant and more recent growth of Christianity in Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. The implication of these surveys was clear. Christianity may have started in the Middle East, but it did not flourish there in the long run. There's some element of truth in this story. Following the rise of Islam in the seventh century, Christian communities as a proportion of total populations entered a state of demographic contraction in the lands that we now regard as the Middle East and North Africa as many people embraced Islam or became absorbed into Muslim communities. 
So in my comments today, as I said again, I'd like to add some longer-term historical depth to our discussions about the size of Christian populations in Islamic societies. And I use the adjective here, Islamic, as an umbrella term to cover areas ruled by Islamic states that contain diverse populations of Muslims, Christians, and Jews. So first, I'd like to quickly sketch some of the broad structural factors that caused Christian populations in the Middle East to shrink as the Islamic era progressed. Second, I'd like to consider two new factors unrelated to war and civil conflicts that have affected Christian populations in the modern era, namely emigration and changing practices and patterns in family life. These factors have been in some respects related to and in other respects independent of the status of Muslim-Christian relations. And they can remind us of how complicated it can be to account for social change over time. And to conclude, I'd like to suggest three sets of questions that these historical experiences may elicit for us today. So beginning in the mid-7th century, Muslim armies established an Islamic empire in many of the former lands of the Byzantine and Persian empires, which contained significant Christian populations. The leaders of this Islamic empire devised policies and set examples of rule that many Islamic states across history went on to follow. Notably, they recognized Christians like Jews as fellow believers in God, and on this basis guaranteed them protection, religious tolerance, and the ability to pursue livelihoods. And yet, these Muslim leaders also assigned Christians subordinate social positions by barring them from certain activities, such as military service, requiring them to pay a special tax, and restricting their latitude in family affairs. Developments in Islamic law and practice confirmed, for example, that Muslim men could marry Christian women and have children who automatically inherited their father's Islam, whereas Christian men reciprocally could not marry Muslim females. Similarly, Christians could convert into Islam, but Muslims could not leave Islam through conversion in return. In fact, the only conversions that the Islamic State and successor states allowed were conversions to Islam. And the result was that Christians were able to increase their numbers through births to Christian couples alone. They could not evangelize and seek converts. Conversion to Islam accelerated under these circumstances, and within three centuries of the rise of Islam, by say the 900s, the substantial majority of people in the countries corresponding to what are now Iraq, Iran, Egypt, and greater Syria appear to have been Muslim. Those Christian populations that persisted after this period were small, but appeared to hold steady during a long Pax Islamica, a long period of Islamic imperial peace. So now let us fast forward into the modern era and enter the 18th century. By this time, Ottoman sultans in Istanbul were ruling much of what we now call the Middle East, but the powers of Europe, and especially Russia, France, and Britain, were trying to exert more political and economic influence over the region. At this time, the situation for Middle Eastern Christians began to change in important ways as Catholic missionaries from Western Europe intensified their efforts to persuade Middle Eastern Christians to enter into union with Rome. Protestant missionaries from countries like Britain, Germany, and the United States arrived later in the 19th century 
trying to persuade everybody, Christians and non-Christians alike, to join their various churches, thereby attempting to ignore or evade Islamic State policies that forbade their evangelization. Together, Catholic and Protestant missionaries ended up exerting a powerful social impact on Middle Eastern Christians through schools, hospitals, and other institutions that they founded. That is, they gave Middle Eastern Christians a certain cultural and economic edge relative to many of the Muslims around them by exposing local Christians to modern education, boosting their literacy rates dramatically, teaching them European languages and ways of living, dressing, and behaving in public life, and more. Missionaries also exerted critical influences on Middle Eastern women, for example, by persuading them to come to church regularly as opposed to leaving collective worship to men, and by introducing women to new ideas about prenatal care and postnatal care for their babies. The results of these social changes were becoming visible by the mid-19th century. Namely, Middle Eastern Christians were growing wealthier, better educated, and more westernized relative to many of their Muslim neighbors, and they had closer connections to European and American businesses. Christians were also growing healthier. Equipped with medical knowledge gleaned from missionaries, their babies, for example, were avoiding or surviving childhood illnesses at a higher rate than Muslim infants. Yet even as these changes occurred, certain Islamic conventions, Islamic laws, and conventions of Islamic statecraft persisted, so that by the mid-19th century and continuing until World War I, Christians were not bearing arms in, Muslim, in Ottoman militaries. The assumption was that Christians could not or should not serve in Muslim armies. And in this era, again the 19th century, when the Ottoman Empire was waging a seemingly constant stream of defensive wars, especially against Russia, this meant that Muslim families were <coughs> yielding up their sons to military drafts, while Christian families were avoiding military service completely. These combined circumstances, including the lack of military drafting among Christians and the lower rates of child mortality among Christians, may help to explain a phenomenon that some observers have claimed to detect, namely a Christian demographic boom that began to occur in places like Syria and what's now Turkey, and that caused anxiety and resentment among some Muslims, including notably in the eastern Anatolian region where many Armenian Christians were still living when World War I began in the area corresponding to what is now Turkey. As the 19th century ended, a new factor came into play, however, that reduced Christian populations, namely emigration to North and South America on the part of Syrian or Lebanese Christians. And I find the work of Akram Khater compelling here. In his book about emigration from Mount Lebanon to the Americas in the years between 1870 and 1920, he argues that it was not political crisis or sectarian discord in the aftermath of the Mount Lebanon War of 1860 that prompted many Christians to leave for the Americas, but rather what he calls the elevated expectations of peasants, especially among Christians who had started to enjoy incomes from working in the Lebanese silk industry that had close connections to French markets. In other words, to put this in simpler language, 
Middle Eastern Christians began to emigrate in large numbers because they became aware of and eager for economic opportunities abroad. And their contacts, again, with Christian mission schools and European merchants helped to sharpen this awareness among them. This wave of emigration may have set a pattern that others have subsequently suggested and that came up in our morning session, actually, the idea that Christians were emigrating at a higher rate than their Muslim counterparts. Turning to the 20th century, we can detect yet another factor pressing down on Christian demographics, namely family planning. By the mid-20th century in Egypt, for example, American Protestant missionaries were working closely with the Egyptian government to distribute contraception to married couples in rural areas of Upper Egypt. Christians appear to have embraced <coughs> the practice, perhaps helping to explain something else that observers suggested and that also came up in our morning session, namely that Christians throughout the Middle East began to have smaller families in the mid-20th century as part of an economic strategy for the advancement of their children. The smaller size of Christian families undoubtedly bore some relationship also to increasing <coughs> marriage ages among them, which reflected in turn growing educational expectations for Christian males and females. So to conclude, I'd like to point out three issues that complicate our understandings of Christian communities while raising important questions, and you'll see that these draw upon some of the themes that have already come up. So first point, in 1967, the French Jesuit scholar Maurice Martin published a short but fascinating study analyzing demographic changes among Egypt's Coptic Christian population. He calculated that Egypt's Christian population had been, it was 7% was the number he came up with, 7% Christian in 1897. And he suggested that it was still 7% Christian in 1966, which was the year before he wrote his essay. In other words, the numbers had not changed much over the century that he was looking at. Now note that the CIA World Factbook, in its current 2014 edition, claims that Egypt's population is now 9% Coptic and 1% other Christian, for a 10% Christian total. So. If we put Martin's 1967 study together with the current CIA figures, can we reasonably conclude that the Christian population of Egypt has proportionally increased somewhat since the 1960s? Anecdotal evidence suggests no, that Christians have been emigrating from Egypt disproportionately relative to Muslims, partly as a result of mounting informal but chronic discrimination associated with the rise of Islamism in Egyptian public life. The fact is that population headcounts by religion, Muslim or Christian, or sect, Sunni or Shi'i, are so hotly political, so deeply contested in many Middle Eastern countries that we would do well not to trust statistics like these too much. The shakiness of the numbers nevertheless makes it hard for analysts to know with any precision how religious demographics are really changing and how many Christians there really are. Second point, in the modern Middle East, members of Middle Eastern Christian communities often developed close ties to foreign Christians, including business people, consuls and diplomats, and again, missionaries. 
At times, these contacts have led Muslims to develop a wariness about the Christians around them, seeding doubts about their loyalty and their foreign affinities, arguably thereby leaving them open to being treated as scapegoats for unpopular foreign policies and actions by Christian <coughs> foreign powers. So a question for us today is, to what extent have ties to Europe, the United States, and the West in general been a help or hindrance, a boon or liability for Middle Eastern Christians? By advocating too seriously, too strenuously, for the rights and well-being of local Christians relative to their Muslim neighbors, do foreign governments, organizations, and individual activists run the risk of imperiling Middle Eastern Christians? Or to put the question even more bluntly, if Middle Eastern Christians have been vulnerable, to what extent, if any, have foreign Christians been to blame? And the third and last point, Islamic laws and Islamic traditions of statecraft continue to uphold some of the same policies, for example, towards marriage, that Muslim authorities devised centuries ago. These traditions inform popular attitudes as well. The question that persists then is this one. How much latitude can Christians expect or hope to enjoy in Islamic societies that uphold established traditions? Assuming that Christians would like to remain rooted in Middle Eastern societies and that their Muslim neighbors would like them to stay rooted as well, how much change and accommodation can Christian and Muslim people reasonably expect or demand of each other? Thank you very much. Thank you very much, and thank you for your provocative questions and comments at the end. I'm sure that will generate good discussion. Um, the second speaker is Noah Hajduk-Dale, and he is an assistant professor of history at Centenary College in New Jersey, a fairly recent PhD from New York University. Uh, and has published again from his dissertation, uh, Arab Christians in British Mandate Palestine, Communalism and Nationalism, covering the period of British rule from 1917 to 1948 with Edinburgh Press, just published last year. Um, and in that, he's looking at the extent to which there was a sense of communalism that was congruent with nationalism or in conflict, in a sense, with it. And I happen to agree with his conclusions, which I won't say now. Um, he's actually uh, moving in a new direction in his research. He's moving toward working on environmental history in the Persian Gulf. But maybe he'll come back and give another talk on that in the future. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so I'm not going to do any of the background on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, but I'm going to talk about it. So if there are things that come up and you find yourself wondering, well, what was that about? We can certainly, I can try to get into that more. But for the sake of this, I wanted to jump right into the um, this issue of Palestinians as nationalist and communalist and what those two identities, or how those two identifications merge. Um, there are a lot of ways I could have addressed this, but I thought I'd take these four questions that were posed and I will offer sort of one answer to each of them. There are lots of ways, again, to address each of the questions. but. Um, in answer to the first question, that is, how did the colonial period impact Christian communities, I point out that the presence of colonialism often highlighted divisions among Christians that were, at times, more prominent than those between Christians and non-Christians. 
That is, at times, Christians disagreed with Christians just as much as they disagreed with Muslims, or to put it another way, sometimes Christians cooperated with Muslims just as much as Muslims, uh, or just as much as they did with other Christians. A um, couple examples, um, comments by the well-known Palestinian educator Khalil Sakakini explain his frustration with Christians who joined the Muslim Christian Association in the early years of British rule. While Arabs of all religious stripes were joined in their opposition to Zionism, he complained bitterly that the Latins are pro-French, the Orthodox pro-British, and the Muslims for independence, or at least Britain or America, if there has to be a mandatory power. So we see, again, a division between Christians. So to talk about Christians of the Middle East may not be appropriate. A more telling example, or maybe a more detailed example, uh, of this division among Christians occurred a decade later. In October of 1930, Jamila Bahri, a prominent leader of the Haifa Melka community, was killed in the course of protests concerning ownership over a Haifa cemetery. British officials noted that tensions were raised between Muslims and Christians, but they left it at that. It was true. Uh, a Christian assaulted a Muslim newspaper editor in Jaffa in retaliation. In that same city, a scuffle broke out in a cafe. A couple of Christians were beaten up by the time the police arrived. Uh, tensions also ran high in Haifa newspapers, with al-Bahri's newspaper, al-Zahur, lambasting local Muslims for their part in the death of their martyred editor. And a local Muslim paper took a defensive position and, of course, blamed Christians for escalating the violence. But I think that the more interesting story here, is, especially concerning this point, was the tension that emerged between Melkite Christians, those are Greek Catholic Christians, and Orthodox Christians, Greek Orthodox, Arab Orthodox, the name is debatable depending on who you ask. Um, <clears throat> Melkites, that is the denomination of Jamil al-Bahri, were anxious to rally support in the face of what they claimed was Muslim aggression. I think it's easy for us to read that now and accept it as such, given the stories that we heard earlier this morning about burning churches in, in Egypt and such. Um, but you have to remember that at this time there wasn't a whole lot of open interreligious conflict. A murder of a, somebody of the other religion because of their religion was, is not something that I found much in the uh, British Mandate period in Palestine. Um, <clears throat> the Melkites highly regarded Arab nationalist leader, Bishop Hajar. He was the only head of church who was an Arab. All of the other heads of church, as I will discuss later, were foreigners. Uh, he held an inter-Christian meeting to address Melkite concerns, but the Orthodox members walked out when Hajar made it clear that his intention was to pit Christians against Muslims. Orthodox Christians, who were about 40% of the uh, Christian population, raised their voices in protest in the form of opinion pieces to regional newspapers and protests to the government, stating their refusal to participate in such a display of sectarian politics. Again, these examples serve to show the dynamics of conflict between Christian groups rather than assuming a unified Christian perspective or voice. The second question um, was asking us to address the effects of Christians from the West. My approach would be different. If we had somebody up here speaking about missions, we might have a very different uh, answer to this question. I'll touch on them briefly at the end. Um, I think the most important conclusion I can draw, sort of to summarize uh, from my research, is that non-Arab Christian behavior was often very divisive, but never simple to summarize or to stereotype. Certain foreign Christians had uh, pushed Christians to seek communalism, while other foreign Christian activities pushed them more into a nationalist camp. Um, <clears throat> the role of the Greek patriarch, particularly Patriarch Damianos, who was the patriarch for most of the mandate period, is fairly well known, but worth repeating. Um, much is known about Arab responses uh, to his rule because of a very open conflict between the Arab Orthodox laity and the Greek hierarchy. We addressed this briefly earlier with discussions of the way that um, church leaders in 
both Egypt and Syria have responded to the Arab Spring, while the laity has clearly responded in a different way. It seems clear that each segment of what uh, Christian newspaperman Isal Issa called the triple mandate, that is the British mandate, the Zionist mandate, and the Greek patriarchal mandate, um, that this contributed to the growth of Palestinian Arab nationalism and pushed Arab Christians, at least Orthodox Christians, closer to their Muslim brethren. The conflict with the Greek patriarch was both a cause of and an effect of Arab nationalism. On the other hand, you had Luis Barlesina, who was the Latin patriarch from 1920 to 1947, almost the entirety of the period that I studied. Uh, he was virulently anti-Zionist, and at least in the beginning was very openly anti-British also. Eventually the Vatican asked him to sort of quiet that down once the British and French had come to their agreement over who got what and where the border between Syria or with Syria would be. Um, <clears throat> but as such, he was a hero of Arab nationalists. But at the same time, he worked very hard to solidify a sense of Catholic exceptionalism among his flock. It's difficult to know how much this shaped the Catholic role in the, na in the national movement. Clearly not everyone listens to their, to their religious leaders in all matters. But it is equally as clear that Orthodox Christians were far more involved in the politics of the nation than their Latin counterparts. Latin here being the word that they use in Palestine for, <laughs> um, for Catholics, Roman Catholics. Uh, I'll discuss um, the union of Arab Orthodox clubs in a moment, but I should also just mention here that by the end of the mandate, some Latin Christians were um, engaging in what we might call extra hierarchical organization. That is, they were creating religious groups outside of the oversight um, of their religious hierarchy. Um, I already mentioned I, I haven't focused much in my work or my research on missionaries in Palestine. Um, there's a book by Laura Robeson where she spends a, a chapter looking specifically at the Anglican Church. It is worth noting, though, that Protestant missionaries, particularly connected with the, the Anglican Church and, and some others, uh, did um, produce a, quite a number of, not very many converts, but the converts that, that uh, there were in Palestine tended to be activists, and they fought very strongly against non-Arab hierarchies. Um, these Arab Anglicans, for example, were given a native council by the missionaries, but instead they advocated for a separate Arab Protestant denomination. Um, and then finally, in 1928, there was a missionary conference held in Jerusalem that the British allowed, and it quickly became a lightning rod for uh, Muslim critics saying that, look, the British are allowing missionaries into our country, they're going to try to proselytize, and sometimes the line was blurred between Arab Christians and foreign missionaries. And once again, Arab Christians stood up and said, whoa, 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 we're not like those Christians. We are Arabs, we don't think missionaries are good either, we don't think proselytizing is good. And so they tended, again, what you see here is that sometimes religious leaders encouraged groups to be communalist and other times more nationalist. My contribution to the third question, that is the role of prominent Arab Christians in shaping the nationalist movement, um, I have written here that it's a bit tangential. I think I actually approach it from the opposite direction and I look more at, uh, the, the point that I will make has more to do with non-elite Arabs by the end of the mandate. Um, one of the most important conclusions that I drew from my research, in contrast to a common assumption, is that communalism and nationalism were not contradictory terms in the eyes of Palestinians during the mandate. Uh, the whole reason I became interested in this subject um, of Palestinian Christians was that my first introduction to the conflict was by a man named Ilyas Jabour, who is a, um, he's from Shef Amr, which is in, near Haifa in Israel, and he introduced himself as a Christian, Palestinian, Arab, Israeli, and for him, religion was absolutely an essential piece of his understanding of the conflict and his relationship to the conflict. Um, and 
but the, these various identities all informed one another. So that's how I came to this, was as religion being an important piece of it. Going back to the mandate, um, I think it's easier in the early days of the mandate, when the greatest social division was between the elite leadership and the rest of the population, for political leaders to embrace a non-religious nationalism. I hesitate to call it secular nationalism, but to have nationalism really trump religious identities. We can make a big deal out of Christians' overrepresentation in elite circles at this time, but I get the sense that it wasn't really about numbers, but about the way that a group of well-off notables viewed their place in society. As more and more of the population engaged in the national debate, religious identification emerged as a more prominent theme. I believe it was because it was easier for elite urbanites to imagine their connections to other social and political leaders in regional cities that were more acceptable to, uh, more apt to accept secular nationalism. Peasants, on the other hand, probably had never had as strong a connection to their Ottoman or regional identities, at least not to, um, to the ones that mattered in circles of political power. Religion was a much easier sell as a common feature of how they identified themselves. This doesn't explain uh, similar developments in other countries, but I certainly think that the compounded emphasis on religion pushed more and more Palestinians toward communalism. The British were obsessed with religion and religious distinction in Palestine as well as in the rest of their empire. But in Palestine, Arabs also had um, Jewish Zionism to deal with, which also elevated the position of religion in the way that people identified themselves. So as a result of that, it took a lot of effort, but there, were some very overt, there was a very overt struggle to balance between communalism and nationalism. And it came from both Muslims and Christians. One great example on the Muslim side is a popular poet during the period of the Great Revolt in the 1930s named Nuh Ibrahim, who wrote about uh, the importance of um, nationalism. All of his poetry was dripping with nationalism, as well as Islamism. Um, he was very openly Islamic in his poetry, but at the same time, he wrote poems that, um, that, that called on Muslims and Christians to remember that they were brothers in Arab nationalism. Um, and so there was, again, clearly trying to overcome that division. Uh, on the other side, from a Christian perspective, and here, one of the questions that um, emerged, I think, in our last conversation was, what can Christians do about their position, as opposed to what can Muslims do? And here in the 1940s, uh, there's a great example of what Christians did in order to um, strengthen their position in society while at the same time um, strengthening their position as a religious minority. And that's the Union of Arab Orthodox Clubs. Um, rather than allow their religion to be subsumed by, nation by national identity, um, the Union of Arab Orthodox Clubs used their religious organization to push for nationalist causes. Their anthem, this is the Union of Arab Orthodox Clubs, clearly a religious organization, their anthem that they sang at their meetings didn't mention the word Christian in it. Their logo, there was actually a big debate about whether they should include a cross in their logo because they didn't want to alienate themselves from nationalist circles. Um, so a couple of lessons for today from some of those points that I've raised. First, interreligious relations are historically determined. There are moments of cooperation, moments of strife, but insisting, as so many do, that Muslim-Christian relations are essentially wrought with conflict, as we, and we only tend to see the worst, um, instead of the variety that is actually present. Second, I would again highlight that nationalism and communalism are not necessarily opposite modes of identification. It's okay for an individual or a group to embrace both, or to embrace religion as a means of embracing a national community. Remember, these communities, uh, these labels, are all social constructions, and people can and do construct them however they like. It doesn't do a whole lot of good for us on this side of the world to say, you must understand yourself as X, Y, or Z. <clears throat> Third, Christians play an important role in determining their relationship to non-Christians. 
Muslim-Christian relations are often analyzed as if they're fully determined by Muslim action and Islamic theology. But mandate Christians have shown how a full embrace of the nationalist movement was the best way to overcome religious conflict with their neighbors. Finally, religious affiliation is but one way that people identify themselves. Sometimes it's a powerful mode of identification, and at other times it's less important. I would say that right now, particularly as many of the previous panelists have pointed out, um, following the war in Iraq, we're in a wave of where religion is an extremely important way that people identify themselves. Um, but it's not going to always be that way. And I might to say, what can we do as America would be to try to turn the conversation away from that form of identification. How do you do it? I don't know. That's your job. <laughs> I don't do policy. But it certainly seems like that stress on religious identification only perpetuates this myth of a Middle East, a sectarian Middle East. Thank you very much. I think that provided an interesting case study and in some ways complicating some of the things that Heather was saying, and the two of you could play off, I think, on that. Our third speaker is Elizabeth Podromo, if I have it correct. Podromo, um, And she's a graduate of BA from Tufts University, master's from Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, and PhD in political science from MIT. It's actually fairly unusual to get a political science degree from MIT, I guess. But uh, anyway, um, it's another issue. She has uh, been doing a lot of work on interreligious uh, uh, issues. She was for eight years from 2004 to 2012 vice chair and commissioner of the US Commission on International Religious Freedom. Uh, since then, she's been a member of the US Secretary of State's Religion and Foreign Policy Working Group, particularly focused on strategic dialogue with civil society. Uh, she is teaching at Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy now and is also affiliated with Harvard's Center for European Studies, where she co-chairs uh, two study groups. One is on Muslims and democratic politics, and the other is the Southeastern Europe Study Group. Um, she has been, she is also, I should say, an expert on Orthodox Christianity in Islam in both Europe and the Middle East, and has been looking on is at issues of state policies on nationalism and religious, religious pluralism. And then also, of course, very much involved in issues of religion and American foreign policy. Um, and in addition to that, if that's not enough, um, has a lot of experience in what is called track two diplomacy, so unofficial sense diplomacy involving civil society dialogue groups. Um, she has published a lot in a lot of journals, so I don't have time to list them all, and is co-editor and contributor to uh, several publications, I'll just mention two, uh, Thinking Through Faith, New Perspectives on Orthodox Christian Scholars, and also a book that's forthcoming, Orthodox Christianity, Higher Education, and the University, Theological, Historical, and Contemporary Reflections. So I'm glad you were able to come to the Philadelphia area to talk to us. Thank you. Um, so I feel last and least, but no, um, it's, a, um, it's a pleasure to be here. And, uh, um, it's a pleasure to be here, and thanks to the uh, to all the organizers. I think I'm the only person um, who doesn't have some sort of a Villanova connection. I don't. Um, but I oh, hope that I will. Noah says he doesn't. Uh, okay. Okay. Closer. Okay. Um, I begin with a disclaimer, which is that 
Uh, I'm not a historian. This is a panel that was meant to focus on history. So I, although I'm married to a historian, I'm not <laughs> a historian. Okay. So, um, uh, but, but I do think that uh, history is absolutely crucial to how we understand what's happening in the region, the specific pro issue of uh, the imperiled condition of Christians in the, in the greater Middle East and the more general and related issue of uh, pluralism, social and religious pluralism in the, in the Middle East. History really helps us to sort of uh, unpack uh, the problem. So um, what I'd like to do is um, begin uh, with a, a, a suggestion that although this. Oh, is this. Oh, okay. I, I, don't, oh, yeah. I don't think this mic. Yeah, I don't think it's working. Oh. Yet. Okay. Put both. Okay, is this better? But you yeah. can't talk, you've got to okay. bring it closer to you right. so you're not leaning forward okay. the whole time. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Sorry. All right, is this better? Yeah, okay. All right. All right. okay. Um, I'm just going to take this out. It's much easier. Okay, good. Um, one of the things I wanted to do is actually begin with a suggestion, although this is a, a project that is dealing with the Arab Middle East. I, I would, um, you know, make a, a, a plea for you to think about including another country, and that's Turkey. And the reason I say that is because um, since you asked us to talk about uh, history and in particular the Ottoman Empire, um, I think you know um, it's it's absolutely important to understand the role of Turkey both historically uh, as the Ottoman Empire, but also contemporaneously. Um, and I don't I'll also argue that what we're seeing in um, many of the Arab Middle East <coughs> countries is the uh, we're seeing in Turkey the end stage of of what we're seeing in those Arab Middle East countries. Um, and by that I mean simply the slow, steady, and um, quite systematic. Um, erasure of the presence of Christianity uh, in the region. And I mean, when I say the erasure of Christi the Christian presence, I mean of living Christians as well as all of those physical uh, markers that there were once Christians in their own lands of origin. And by that I mean things like churches, uh, monasteries, even cemeteries, uh, schools, um, anything that uh, hints at uh, a different kind of narrative than the one that I think we have um, largely uh, been willing to accept regarding how to think about the region and its um, religious diversity and pluralism. And, you know, I, I would also suggest that in that regard, although it was quite fashionable for some time, uh, certainly, well, if you're Bernard Lewis for your whole life, but um, if you're not, um, then certainly from 2003 until maybe last year, it was quite fashionable to talk about Turkey as a potential model, mm -hmm. certainly inside the Beltway. That was the you know the trope over and over again. Turkey as a model for the Middle East. I mean, which certainly raised the hackles of um, Arab Middle East countries who certainly were not interested in looking at Turkey as a model for anything. And secondly, also um, again helps to overlook a, a long historical record that is quite checkered when it comes to the issue of um, religious pluralism and sustainable democracy. So. Having made that plea for a, a redesign in your project, I, I say it with all humility um, and move forward. Now, a word about the Ottoman Empire. This is, of course, a huge topic, um, but I think it's relevant for our uh, purposes here today for two reasons in particular. First, there's the issue of the mythology of the Ottoman Empire as an experience, an experiment of religious pluralism and multiculturalism. Uh, this might be helpful for descriptive purposes, but it's 
Yes, the Ottoman Empire was indeed uh, multicultural and religiously diverse and plural, but it's completely unhelpful for analytic and policy purposes. The Ottoman Empire was built on a system that we all know, the millet, which the millet system was nothing more than a, a system of institutionalized, separate and unequal when it came to the issue of religious differences. It's a model of the subject, not the citizen. Um, so it's a blueprint that, as far as I'm concerned, should be boxed permanently in somebody's attic. Uh, whether you're a Muslim subject or a non-Muslim subject in the Ottoman Empire, the millet had little to do with how we might think about social pluralism and political citizenship today. And unfortunately, it's a model that has actually, I would submit, left a political and cultural residue that undermines efforts at democracy building premised on citizenship and equality before the law. And I think two practices in particular are quite emblematic of the, the myth versus the reality of the Ottoman Empire. Um, the first is the jizya, which is uh, you know, a protection money masquerading in the form of a poll tax, but even still a highly unequal poll tax that discriminated against Christians uh, and Jews, and secondly, um, against Christians. And secondly, the devshirme, which was a practice that um, had begun to be phased out by the beginning of the 17th century, but nonetheless, uh, when it existed for a century and a half, involved the forced conscription and conversion of um, Christian, young Christian men. Um, both of these, I think, are, are you know, indications of the broader kind of logic that ran through the millet system and the Ottoman experience when it came to the Christian populations of the Ottoman Empire. And quite concerningly, uh, there have been reports now that have surfaced in the last several weeks about uh, ISIS, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, uh, beginning to reimpose the jizya on the Christian population that's left in, in Syria. We hear, I would say, um, kind of remnants of um, you know, this, this logic of uh, Christians and how they were treated in the Ottoman Empire every time we hear, again, the language of um, you know, the region as Muslim. Um, again, descriptively and demographically, we, that's, a, that's quite accurate. But in terms of the analysis and the policy implications, that's a whole separate thing. The other reason that I think uh, it's useful to you know, begin with the Ottoman Empire, as we were asked to do, um, is that um, you know, discussing uh, the Ottoman Empire helps us to uncover the empirical reality that um, religious pluralism in the region was not actually a function of the Ottomans' arrival. There was extraordinary religious pluralism in the region during the Byzantine and even pre-Byzantine period, or Roman and pre-Roman period. And this is more than an arcane historical point. It's the difference between seeing Christians as indigenous versus Christians as aliens, Christians as a finger of the West or neighboring Christian powers, or Christians as late arrival to the region. So there's a historical narrative problem at work here with direct policy consequences uh, that are uh, overwhelmingly negative for Christians. And this issue of indi indigeneity or whether Christians are seen as indigenous or not, again, reinforces the other narrative problem of uh, Christians as um, a, a minority rather than Christians as being a population <laughs> that have historically existed in, in that part of the world. Um, uh, one, other, uh, one other footnote to this, uh, the issue of Christians as late arrivals. Um, the, um, this leads to the mistaken equivalence now, and I th think that this is very active in terms of the Washington policy establishment, of speaking about uh, the Christian condition or the persecution of Christians in the region 
as being equated with being Islamophobic. And I think this is an especially serious problem for, um, well, for US foreign policy and for the progressive voice, but more generally. It's a pervasive problem that also leads to um, a quite anemic level of support for religious freedom and human rights. Um, and it also makes it easier for either um, radical Islamists or cultural Muslims who are not uh, or radicals to um, speak about Christians as, again, um, a foreign finger as, and I use the language that one reads in the press quite, uh, you know, in the street, um, as, you know, uh, a kind of clients of uh, powers that don't have the interests of the, re the best interests of the region at heart. And that may certainly be true, that the outside world doesn't have the interests of the region at heart, but Christians in the region are not necessarily, are not associated with that problem. Um, let's see. How to explore, the second question that we were asked to talk about, how to explore the impact of Christians from the West and their outreach. Um, both of my co-panelists, I think, have discussed that with extraordinary expertise and sophistication. I'd like to make just you know two footnote points. Um, first is uh, the issue of where we begin the historical narrative. And again, uh, beginning the historical narrative at a period, at a time uh, before the, f the 15th century, I think, is very useful because Again, it helps us not only to speak about the fact that Christians have long been in the region for two millennia, but also it helps us then get to another issue of great policy importance, and that is um, the question of the diversity and heterogeneity, the pluralism within uh, the Christian communities themselves. Um, and I think that's something that, uh, again, has had very direct policy consequences when it comes to very recent history. One of the, the greatest challenges in uh, allowing uh, individuals and groups on the ground to advocate for themselves in the region, but since we're talking about Christians in the region, um, it has been the problem of whether or not there has been unity in the Christian voice in the region. And this was a particularly acute problem in the case of Iraq. It continues to be a problem with you know the Christians that remain in Iraq by depending on whose numbers one agrees with. Uh, Christians are down from 1.5 million to 300,000 in Iraq <laughs> today. Um, it's a problem for the Christians of Syria. Uh, it's a problem more generally in the region. There is incredible pluralism within these Christian communities, however, because demographically their numbers are small uh, and therefore they live as, uh, in, in an endangered condition. It's been very difficult for Christians as a community, a larger community, to de develop unified policy positions about how to address their own survival and sustainability, but also how to advocate for uh, their uh, broader integration into broader society. And again, the Iraqi case, I think, is particularly emblematic. There was great disagreement um, during the period of the US invasion and occupation about uh, how Christians could best protect themselves. On the one hand, you had Christians who were fearful of even speaking up about what the violence that was being perpetrated against them. On the other hand, you had some Christians who advocated for the creation of a Christian um, uh, zone in the Nineveh Plain region. And then finally, you had Christians who opposed that second proposal because they argued that placing them in a, in a particular geographic region would um, make them you know, t easier targets. So the bottom line here is that there is pluralism within these Christian communities, there's disagreement about how to assess their own condition, and there's also great disunity about how to advocate for themselves in terms of their own long-term sustainability. And I think 
one of the things at the policy level then that is, you know, is the consequence of this internal pluralism is the difficulty of trying to uh, make policy proposals from the outside that can be accepted by, um, you know, the various Christian communities within. Um, and then one last footnote on the, the pluralism within the Christian communities. And again, I think you both really beautifully illustrated the fact that um, there is tension within the three major denominations in the Christian community, uh, uh, communities of the region. Uh, you know, Greek Orthodox oftentimes see Roman Catholics as related to the crusade. Roman Catholics and, and um, Arab and Greek Orthodox see Protestants as, um, you know, very aggressive evangelizers and therefore provoking reactions against Christians writ large. And the fact of the matter is that under the rubric of ecumenism or Christian ecumenism, these kinds of tensions, their historical roots as well as their contemporary expressions are things that need to be discussed far more openly. These are kind of the 800 pound gorillas in the room whenever you get, um, you know, Christian leaders and lay or non-lay people together to discuss their current condition um, in the region, and I think it's it's something that you know is worth thinking about. Um, let's see. Uh, uh, something, uh, another point uh, on on history, and again, where we begin uh, sort of measuring. Uh, our historical analysis. I think in terms of thinking about the cr condition of uh, Christians, the historical condition of Christians in the region, it's very useful to start uh, at the start of the 20th century, 1923 in particular, since that's the official end of the Ottoman Empire. But the 20th century, after all, is the period in which we see the emergence of what we would consider you know, modern states in the region. Um, and I think it's very important for our purposes to recognize that what we're seeing more recently, 2003, in particular 2003 to the present, uh, is only again the latest stage in a far longer, far more attenuated process of decline of the Christian presence in the greater Middle East. Um, now that process of decline itself has occurred by virtue of a, a variety of policies, but nonetheless I think there are two particular ways for us to think about that. First of all is uh, the issue of the narrative, again, of secularist versus fundamentalist. It's very important, I think, for policy purposes moving forward to move out of this kind of hackneyed, you know, dichotomous view of either, um, you know, fundamentalist, uh, fundamentalist religious regimes on the one hand or secularist liberal regimes on the other. Because the fact of the matter is there are all sorts of choices in between. But equally important, as I mentioned earlier this morning, uh, secularists in the greater Middle East have not been liberals. And secularist regimes have been very bad for um, the uh, Christian presence in the region. Secularists has, have presided over a long, slow process of systematic discrimination and persecution and violation of the rights of Christians in the region. And here again, Turkey, Egypt to a lesser extent, you see sort of elements in both. But Turkey is a, a quintessential uh, example of that. Um, long periods of uh, nonviolence, punctuated by episodes of violence, like pogroms. Um, but the periods of nonviolence uh, were marked by the institutionalization of policy mechanisms that were designed to economically disenfranchise Christians. They're not; they were not allowed to inherit property. They were not allowed to transfer property. 
that were uh, designed to expropriate the properties of Christians, in particular, not only not being allowed to build new churches, but not being able to repair existing churches because of zoning laws that were so arcane or obfuscatory that um, no one could make their way through them. And again, this has been a particularly um, salient factor for cops in Egypt as well. Um, and then other, um, other limitations, for example, on the professions in which Christians were actually allowed to work. Um, and then finally, interference, interference in the internal governance of Christian communities. Um, interference in the selection of election and selection of hierarchs, and interference in or limitations on the educational, um, on educational institutions and their function for training cr Christian communities. These are all part of uh, the fact, why the fact that in Turkey today there are less than one-tenth of one percent of the population that's Christian. There are about 1,800 Greek Orthodox Christians, 20,000 Assyrian, 25,000 Assyrian Christians, 60,000 Armenian Christians. But again, what you see in, in that case is what is mirrored in what we see in Egypt, certainly, and also what we have seen quietly in Syria. And why do I harp on this secularist Islamist or secularist fundamentalist dichotomy? Because it's that dichotomy that's way, made its way into the policymaking dialogue <coughs> and made it appear that there are only two choices when it comes to how to think about religious pluralism and rule of law citizenship in the region. Um, okay, I, I, I think I'll finish here, but just what's the takeaway? Um, here are the things that uh, I would say. One, uh, to think about uh, a historical timeline that is far longer than one that begins with the Ottoman presence in the region. Two, to recognize that there is great diversity and pluralism within the Christian communities in the region, which makes for both policy opportunities but also policy challenges. Uh, three, um, that to speak about endangered Christians is not the equivalent of being Islamophobic. And four, to recognize that the erasure of the Christian presence in the region has proceeded apace for many decades, but it's not only a function of violence of, against Christians that forces them to exit, but it's a function of nonviolent policies that are designed to um, ultimately push, their are push policies that are designed to make life unlivable so Christians eventually leave the region. Thank you. Thank you very much, and I think uh, your coming last was very good because you brought it into some of the contemporary discussions. So, you know, as a chair, what would, how do you do it fairly? Do you have them all talk at once so that then everybody's talking at the same time? <laughs> but you can't do that. Uh, so we now have a uh, microphone, so this will be good well. for questions, and I guess Marwan will be in charge of carrying it hither and yon. So I will look at people as I... I'm going to take the opportunity to ask yeah, the first question. Mm -hmm. um, one of the biggest declines of Christians have been in Palestine, and I recently, Brian and I, different times, were in, spent some time in Bethlehem and Jerusalem. I mean, it doesn't get more mm -hmm. uh, important for Christians uh, the, the birthplace of Christianity. I think the latest figures I heard is 5,000 Christians live in Jerusalem now, indigenous Christians. Um, that, anybody want to comment a little bit on that? And especially with this new uh, Israeli proposed law 
where is, uh, Palestinians who have Israeli citizenship, the pre-67 uh, uh, Palestinians, um, are now going to be differentiated between Christians and Muslims on their uh, identification. It used to be just Arab, now they're dividing it between Christians and Muslims. So, any, any comment? Sure, I can offer a couple of comments. One is, that's, while that's, uh, the law has been thrown out there again, it's, a, it's an old plan. The, the goal for a long time has been divide in order to separate the communities, make them easier to um, segment off. And you know, it worked with the, with, uh, the Druze to some, to some extent, uh, although there are still problems there. So maybe if we can just get the Christians off in their own community. But they've reacted incredibly strongly to this. Um, there was a meeting in Nazareth where a priest was uh, attended a talk um, held by some military folks who were advocating uh, conscripting Christians, not Muslims. Druze are already allowed to come into the military, but this is to bring Christians in as well. And the local congregation in Nazareth um, exiled the priest from the church. They didn't have any authority to do this, but they did, right? They, they, they wanted to make a point. This is, you, you cannot be a religious leader and agree to anything that will separate us. Some would say it's because they're really strong nationalists. Others will tell you it's because they're afraid of Muslims, right? And that's the same answer that I would have to give to why Christians are leaving Bethlehem. Clearly the primary reason, I have to be careful. Sometimes it's, it's hard not to, be, to think about Palestine as an exceptional example, because it is exceptional. Um, but the, I would think the primary reason would be that there's a wall around Bethlehem, right? I mean, it's, it's a pretty miserable place to live. Um, when I talk to Palestinian Christians, they tell me it's because of the occupation. When I hear secondhand from, you know, so-and-so actually told so-and-so in private, then there are suggestions that there's, you know, a lot of influence now from Muslims who are living on the outskirts of Bethlehem, and now there's a majority of Muslims and it's uncomfortable. Um, who do you believe? I, you know, I, I did meet one um, taxi driver who told me that he flew personally down to South America to pick up his three kids and fly them home. He built them a house in Bethlehem because he wanted to keep Christians in Bethlehem. And the only way he could do it is if he made his own kids live there too. Uh, so they had emigrated, but he went and got them. You know? So you can, you can hear stories from both sides. And I don't know which one is true. I tend to lean on the side of if it wasn't for the occupation, you wouldn't see quite as dramatic of a drop. Do either of you want to comment? Just, yeah, you can, I think, I think that, that works. Yeah. That okay, does this work? Yes. Oh, okay. Um, just, yeah, I, I think it's important to underscore the kind of fragmentation logic that, um, uh, that drives that kind of legislation. And also, again, the discussion about service in the military is, uh, you know, I call me a cynic, but I think it's designed to, uh, you know, it makes me recall, you know, the British and, and, you know, the kinds of policies they pursued in the region. Um, and having a, a Cypriot father, I, I grew up with a very healthy, you know, um, critical view of British imperial uh, policy in the region. Um, but I think it's designed to further fragment. Um, and, and one last point on this, you know, a lot of the evidence and a lot of what we hear is oftentimes anecdotal. You know, as you said, there's the official and then you heard from, you heard from, you heard. Um, I think one of the issues, the, the livability of life or the unlivability of life for Christians um, in, in Israel is something that really needs to be addressed. I mean, we have very dear friends who live in the village of Taibet, for example, and they talk about the same kinds of problems that Christians in Iraq encountered even after the U.S. provided massive amounts of military assistance to rebuild the electrical grid, for example, in Iraq. And, you know, uh, electric, the a national electrical grid at the local level 
left out, um, you know, uh, towns where, where they were overwhelmingly Christian. We see the same thing happening in Taipei when it comes to um, water resources. But they've got a brewery. Oh, yeah, that's right. They do. That's right. A microbrewery. A microbrewery. <laughs> yeah. It's fabulous. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Why don't we start? And introduce yourself, please. Uh, hi, I'm Omar Foda uh, from Penn. And uh, this question, I, I guess, is directed at Professor uh, Hydro Dale, but it could, it could apply to all of you. And uh, something that, that I found interesting or um, appealing about what, what you were talking about, talking about uh, peasants, because I, I feel oftentimes when, when we talk about sort of both policy issues and history in general, uh, specifically when we get to uh, religious minorities, we just have an assumption that it will be a sort of urban urban movement. And um, I think I, I would love for you to talk a little bit more about sort of uh, how the, the peasants, rural, rural communities were involved and, and how they were mobilized, I guess, to be communal or nationalistic. Um, and then, I guess, maybe think about sort of, as just a general comment, as you know, the city, city traditionally has been sort of the, the center of power uh, for the governments, right? And we're, we're, we're trying to think about how we, how we can change the conversation, just thinking about the, the rural, rural population as, as one that, that is oftentimes suffering from lack of infrastructure, lack of services provided, and that's where a movement like the Muslim Brotherhood made great gains, for example, according to them. So maybe if you could talk about that and how that played into uh, the Palestinian history. Um, I prepared these comments as I was teaching about um, Imagined Communities by Benedict Anderson. So this idea of imagining a, a national community, and then I was writing about these religious, uh, these elites in early in the mandate, and they definitely, there was a, a small group of wealthy, um, elites who had been powerful in the late Ottoman Empire, who were the ones who were dictating the conversation. The rest of the community was was not really included. At the same time, I picked up um, Michelle Campos' book, um, Ottoman Brothers. Is that what it's called? And she talks about you know how Jews and Muslims and Christians they all styled themselves as as Ottomans. But the, the example she's giving are lawyers and doctors and this this same group of elites. But the so and then I'm addressing, for instance, this guy, Noah Ibrahim, this poet, little pamphlets, um, and he doesn't show up in any meetings. He's not a nationalist figure. He presumably, if we take his word for it, he's just a normal guy who likes to write poetry. Um, and uh, Izzedine al-Qassam, who was a, a nationalist leader, sort of it, complicated because he's Syrian, but he shows up in Palestine and instantly becomes um, pretty well-known and well-liked because he goes around to the rural villages and he he um, advocates uh, armed resistance against the British in these shanty towns outside of Haifa, where now landless Palestinians are gathering. And from the 1939 revolt onward, the, this group of people plays a much greater role in determining the direction of the conversation. Um, there are still the, the the elites still maintain the positions of sort of power and authority in all of the. Um, mainstream nationalist organizations have been called, and the higher committee and such. But by, during that revolt, 36 to 39, many of them are exiled, others are imprisoned. Um, and so the, the conversation is much more diffuse then. And so my, my suggestion is that those people who are outside of the conversation in the beginning probably never really latched onto this idea of Ottomanism that had, was attempted to be imagined some uh, decades earlier. And 
they, this, you know, Palestinian nationalism was sort of a new idea. It was something they had to get used to. Sure, they might have thought of the area as Palestine, but they certainly didn't think of themselves as part of a nation state of Palestine because there hadn't been one. And so the, the identity that they could um, adhere to and the one that Izzedin al-Qassam so usefully uh, used to, to garner support was Islam. Um, and it was such a clear distinction between we're Muslim and they're British, as opposed to, wait, now we're Palestinian and the neighbors who live to the north are Lebanese or Syrian, like that didn't, uh, and so I, I think it was probably a lot more clear. Um, so I don't know if that, how much that answers of what you're <laughs> asking. But can I ask a question to follow sure. up on that, uh, on that, Noah? I noticed that you were repeatedly using the word communalism as a counterpoint to nationalism. And it struck me that you're using that term communalism in a positive way, mm -hmm. whereas we've been, the word that's been coming up in our conversations is sectarianism, which mm -hmm. always has a negative cast. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering what you see as the difference, or what we see as the difference between communalism and sectarianism. Mm -hmm. And is one constructive and the other one destructive? Um, generally, I, I, I guess I don't see communalism as a positive thing. Uh, and I, in my book, I say that they're synonymous. Really, it's, it depended on which area the British were in, which term they used, and in Palestine they tended to talk about communalism. Um, whereas in Lebanon, for whatever reason, we have scholars who are talking about it as sectarianism. It may have to, I, I don't. And I, like confessionalism mm -hmm. as another term that always yeah. pops up. So these are all just synonymous? Yeah, I mean, my, I'll give you my definition of communalism as I use it, and that's the, the politicization of a religious identification. Um, that you take your religious, your religious beliefs and you turn it into a political label for yourself. Um, and so, um, yeah, stop there. <laughs> it, it's, I could add uh, to your comment on the rural-urban, and this uh, Noah talks about in his book and I also in my dissertation, uh, these elites who were defining politically, of course, they, many of them were ruling the rural areas, right? Uh, so when you get in the 30s, the mobilization in the rural areas, uh, partly defense of their village, not only, I think, of religious identity, but um, there's then a class tension there because these people are also going to revolt potentially against this elite. And there's the whole business of, for example, men shouldn't wear the fez anymore, they should wear the keffiyeh to identify, uh, but also because then people from the village could go into the cities and be uh, involved in the revolt without being obvious that they were not fez-wearing <laughs> um, urbanites, um, and that they could also threaten the power structure in a, in a way as well. Um, and I think you also mentioned, to get back to the Christian Muslim side, that the Christian community was a much more urban community. Mm -hmm. So when you sometimes got uh, comments made that there were not as many Christians involved in the revolt, if you look at the dem demography, you see that in fact there were not as many Christian villagers, so perhaps they were participating more or less proportion to their mm -hmm. part of the rural population. Yes, that, that's, sure, sure, that's one of the, there are a few, um, a couple issues here. One yes. is this idea of wearing the fez yes. is, has been used by critics of, uh, of Muslims in Palestine by okay. saying these Muslims were making Christians not wear the fez okay. and forcing them to wear an Islamic headdress. And it turns out that it's really, it was really an urban-rural yeah. peasant elite thing. And it seemed like it was focused at Christians because there, the majority of the Christian population was more urban. Um, and this, the same thing. So but the Muslim elite was wearing the fez too. Right, and so, so they were affected by it as well, but because the Christians sort of stood out as um, being mostly urban. Uh, some scholars have used it as sort of a way to criticize, or to say that they were mistreated. 
Um, and then in the, in the revolt, there was also a lot of, um, there are a number of scholars who have said that Palestinian Christians did not participate in the 36 to 39 revolt. And I just found that to not be true. They, they participated in all the same ways that people of their same <coughs> social status would participate if they were Muslim. Um, and sometimes they were involved in armed revolt, but there just weren't that many who were of the community, the rural, um, the rural community with less to lose, perhaps, uh, that, that were involved in armed uprising. Um, and so they participated in all the same ways as, as would be expected. <coughs> Do either of you want to add anything? Okay. okay, in the back, yeah. Yeah, I just, um, my name is Clarissa, and I'm from the University of Pennsylvania. I just wanted to follow up on um, some of the comments about the state of Palestinians, or Christians in Palestine, rather. I just spent the <coughs> past semester um, studying abroad in Palestine at Oak Ridge University, living with a Palestinian Christian family in Bethlehem. Um, and because of Israeli restrictions on movement, my host family could not travel into Jerusalem, which is a half hour away from Bethlehem. <coughs> that I could, and the university that I attended, Al-Quds University, which is outside of Jerusalem, but cut off by the wall, literally 100 yards away from the entrance to the gate is 30 feet of concrete. And the Israeli army routinely um, attacks the campus of Al-Quds University with tear gas and rubber bullets that is paid for by the military aid that the United States gives to Israel and that we pay for, which affects Palestinian Christian students as well as Palestinian Muslim students. Um, so I just wanted to hear your thoughts about the U.S. The U.S.'s role in funding a lot of violence that happens. Oh, who would like to? Did that ever come up in your work in the religious with religious liberty issues <laughs> in Washington D.C.? Um, it came up a lot in terms of questions posed. Um, the commission had gone to uh, Israel before I went on in 2004, but we never went after 2004. <laughs> but yes, it's a very serious issue. You want to say more why you didn't go after 2004? No, but what I would like to say, though, is this also goes back to the sort of secular, uh, you know, fundamentalist, uh, dichotomous way of seeing things. Uh, you know, the, the narrative, again, that, you know, there's only one option when it comes to the Palestinians, and that's that everybody is uh, a fundamentalist. I mean, using that narrative has helped to perpetuate a certain set of policies when it comes to U.S. assistance to Israel, and I and I would wager inside of Israel as well. And I think one of the very interesting and also very very complicated um, trend lines in Israel is within the Jewish community in Israel the emergence of you know a highly um, you know religiously radicalized um, conservative um, constituency that in some, many people would argue are spoilers in the political process um, that bodes grave problems for the kinds of things that you're talking about when it comes to Christians. Yeah, just that I'd certainly agree that that's a, a problem. I, I would respond to it by um, pointing out that the United States is involved in the Palestinian situation in so many different ways. Some of them political, um, some of them by funding military efforts, uh, but also there are lots of Americans who are there doing all sorts of really good peace work including lots of religious groups who I think do some of the, the most important work of um, being a presence. And I talked to a guy who had been the pastor of the Lutheran Church there for, I think, five years, and I said, don't you feel this kind of hopeless? Like, how, you've been here for five years and nothing's changed. If anything, it's gotten worse. And he said, can you imagine what it would be like if we weren't here, right? If we weren't here to watch this and to tell people back home what it's about. So y yes, but fortunately, there are, there are 
great ways to get involved in raising awareness about those issues. Sabil, I know, has pamphlets outside, and there are, there are lots of other really wonderful groups. And just so, do you want to mention the conference, Anne? Um, yeah, I don't have the literature with me, but Sabil is a Christian organization among the different Christian churches in Palestine, and they've been working for probably 20 years now, uh, trying to bring together people from, oh, you have it, thank you so much, yeah. Um, trying to bring together the different Christian communities in dialogue, as we indicated, there are many differences there, and then having uh, annual conferences, uh, bringing uh, people from outside into dialogue, uh, coming to Jerusalem or Bethlehem or, or Ramallah, wherever they hold it. So I think, yeah, they do have the literature outside. There's um, friends of Sabil in different parts of the world, and there's one for North America, which includes Canada in it, they're very active there. And so they're having a meeting at the Friends Center on Cherry Street and 17th, 18th, what, 18th, 15th. 15th, oh, I'm moving it too far west, yeah. Uh, 15th and Cherry, uh, all day Friday and all day Saturday, which is also to be very much uh, organizational. Many of the sessions, I think all the sessions on Saturday are breaking into small groups and discussing how can we be more effective in our communities working on Palestinian issues, working on dialogue issues. They have uh, speakers during the day on Friday, including Rami Khoury is coming back, um, and most of it will be on issues of uh, education, advocacy, how to be active on these, on these issues. So pick up the information there. Um, there is a charge for going to it, but I hope they have a student rate. My name is Sandra Khalil. I'm from the Coptic Orthodox Church um, in the area, and so I just wanted to uh, say a few uh, few points. Um, first of all, I'm very thankful for all that's been said about um, you know the views of the Coptics in, in Egypt and in, also here in the United States. I've, I'm born and raised in the U.S. My parents immigrated in the in the late '60s um, to Chicago, and I've been a very devout Christian all my life and have really um, learned a lot um, about my faith. Through a lot of these persecutions that's been going on in Egypt, I've grown closer to understanding my faith. And we have several uh, churches in the area, some of which um, have had martyrs in, in Egypt that have, um, have died because of the uh, tragedies that occurred, um, all of which are local to this area. Um, my, my own family um, had a, a lot of persecution. Uh, my relatives is a priest, and, and Alexandria was trapped in churches in Egypt um, and was not allowed to escape during um, the tragedies. And also my aunt had left because of uh, her, her residence is near the ex-president's uh, residence and had to leave. So there's been a lot of, um, a lot of impact on the community. What I wanted to say is just, I guess this is a good ending. Um, one thing that I, I wanted to, to mention is what gives the, the oldest Christian church in the world, which is of Coptic faith, um, the power that I think has really set itself apart from the rest of the, Cop the, rest of the Christian communities, um, or denominations, I should say, throughout the world, is the idea of, um, or the concept of martyrdom. And um, martyrs have been, part of Egypt, the Christianity in Egypt from the beginning. Um, monasticism, the monastic life as well, is very ancient and has begun in Egypt from the beginning of time. And kind of the concept of monasticism is to die of the world, 
to be dead of the world, and that's why we wear black. A lot of the monks and the nuns wear black because you're dead of the world. And actually, a funeral service occurs at the time of, of someone accepting the vows of monastic life. And this is for all of, actually, Orthodox Christianity, not just Coptics. But it began in Coptic Orthodoxy. It's the beginning of all monastic life. But one thing I, I wanted to say is kind of in the Beatitudes, as we know, um, Mary, that gives us the power, and we know blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for they so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's very strong in the Beatitudes, and I, I wanted to mention that because I think that's what gives the church a lot of power and has really been um, a, you know, a place of extreme persecution from since the beginning. Um, and I, I want to, you know, I wanted to mention um, these words because our church has stand strong in the midst of all of these tragedies and um, even in the, in the, you know, really knowing who's behind some of these attacks, the church has remained peaceful and never fought back, not once, but the truth has always come to fruition at some point in time. A lot of these attacks starting from, you know, original attacks in Negahamanti and moving forward. And so even staying peaceful in prayer has, has brought forth truth of who is behind these attacks, even without violence and, and fighting back. And so I just wanted to mention a couple of those words. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. And that, that brings up a point that I wanted to say is that when we look at the future of Christianity in the uh, Middle East, uh, I think all of us want to keep the Christianity in the Middle East and not make it a diaspora community. We talked this morning about some Jewish communities and uh, Syrian, uh, Syrian uh, and Chaldean <coughs> communities that have, in essence, become diaspora communities. Um, any other questions? No, let me oh. just speak on that for a second. On the Chaldean, because uh, good friends of mine are working in Erbil, in the Kurdish area of Iraq, uh, funded by the Mennonite uh, church, but they working with the Chaldeans, and people were mentioning uh, the attacks against them, particularly in Baghdad, other areas as well, after, in particularly 2006, I think, was the worst. And a lot of the leadership of the church said people are fleeing the country. You know, they're going to Chicago, to Detroit, to Greece, wherever. Um, and they wanted to have a community remain in what is uh, technically still Iraq. And so in Erbil, uh, they rebuilt the seminaries there, um, people literally overnight went from Baghdad up to Erbil and camped out. Now they have beautiful buildings there and young priests being trained. They Nuns rebuilt their kindergartens and their elementary school programs in Erbil. And there's uh, the government there gave them land so that people could have good housing in the Erbil area. So there's been a concerted area to keep at least a small Chaldean community in the country in a safe place um, among the Kurdish population there, which at the moment is very receptive to that. Yeah. Um, my name is Chad. I'm a student at Penn. And uh, my question is for uh, Professor Padrona. Um, and you talked a lot about the different policy implications or what you see as potential policy implications for all the persecution that's going on in the Middle East. And I'm wondering what you see uh, in terms of implications for American foreign policy with what you're talking about, not whitewashing um, 
Islamic or Islamic State treatment of Christian communities and not labeling that Islamophobia. I'm wondering how then you would treat the legitimacy of Islamic governments that are democratically elected in terms of the tension for American foreign policy in supporting democratic processes versus uh, Western or pro-Western uh, favored outcomes. <laughs> Small question. <laughs> okay. Um, it's, a, it's a great question. Uh, I, I would go back to um, the issue of uh, discourse on how we've talked about, uh, you know, the possibilities in the region and, you know, the Egyptian cases is a great case in point. Okay, so there are elections and the Brotherhood comes to power. Um, or take, take the case of Palestine. Elections are held and the outcome is one that the United States certainly didn't want. Okay, but if by all accounts these are fair and free elections, then U.S. policymakers face a dilemma. Um, I guess the proof is in the pudding. Um, you know, the Brotherhood was elected in Egypt and, um, and pursued policies that the United States would not consider uh, consistent with, uh, with democracy, okay, or rule of law. Let me put it that way, with, with rule of law. So, I mean, my, my simple perspective, my simple view is that, um, you know, it's the, it's the demonstrated outcome that matters. I mean, either, you know, you accept that elections are a risk Okay, and you know this is the standard literature on democratization. There may be anti-system actors that are elected. I mean, there's the um, the phrase about Erdogan as you know uh, saying democracy is a bus that we can hop off of anytime we want. Um, you know that's a risk in, in any procedural democracy. But I think either you know the U.S. is willing to take that risk or, or not. But that's where then um, you know assistance and other kinds of and diplomacy become important. And once you see them, what the, the track record is on the ground. Uh, when, when I talked before about um, you know, not equating um, discussion about what's happening to Christians on the ground with uh, Islamophobic language or being an Islamophobe, I, I think that's a, a real dilemma that has emerged over time that I think US policies are very, US policymakers are very hesitant to talk about um, the plight of Christians because uh, of the fear of being seen as being anti-Muslim. And again, now those kinds of dichotomies are really unhelpful. Um, at the end of the day, what's being done to Christians now, or the condition of Christians now, um, is not simply a function of um, you know, Islamist uh, state and non-state actors. That's why I emphasize the importance of looking at the historical record, that the decline of Christians over the 20th century and in the region occurred on the watch of regimes that would not have defined themselves as religious or, or Islamist. So it's a problem with the failure of democratic institutions <coughs> and institutions that are premised on um, support for pluralism. And that is regardless of whether you're talking secular or religious you know, uh, regimes. Yeah, because, let me, wait a second, wait a second. I just wanted to comment too. I, I Excuse me, I'm still talking. Yeah. Uh, uh, he's not in charge. <laughs> and possibly somebody else also wanted to comment. I think. Uh, uh, just to take a bit from her example, uh, I mean, under Morsi, in, for the year that the Brotherhood was in power, uh, there was a discourse that talked about 
um, both secular people, Muslims and Christians, as potentially infidel, uh, uh, potentially treasonous in a, in a religious way. But if you look at what happened from February 2011 till Morsi came in, uh, some of the worst attacks on, on Christians took place when the military was ruling, when the Supreme Council was ruling. So I think it was Hisham who mentioned this in October 2011, October 9th, there was a completely peaceful uh, protest by cops because there had been burning of churches taking place in Upper Egypt, also around Cairo, and they were met at the government TV station with really brutal force by the military, by the military, APCs running over people. So uh, that now, of course, has been rewritten, that history. They're saying it wasn't the military, it was other people doing it now because the military's back in power. So, um, so one can't say that when these, as we said, these so-called secular, non-religious uh, power can itself do some terrible things or allow things to happen. One of the last attacks on churches that took place under Mubarak in Alexandria on New Year's Eve 2010-11, uh, we don't know for sure, but there's a very strong possibility that the head of the Ministry of Interior himself engineered it and then wanted to have it blamed on Palestinian Islamists. Uh, so uh, things are not always what they seem, and also you can't just say uh, you know, Muslims did it or Islamists did it. Right, yeah. Anybody else want to comment on that? Okay, sorry. Um, yeah. Mention was made of the Chaldean church in uh, Iraq moving to Erbil, uh, which is Iraqi Kurdistan. Which reminds me, as uh, far as I can see, uh, the Iraqi Kurdistan area is the one, one successful yeah. part of uh, the American support uh, in the area. There we have what really seems to me to be a really proto-democratic structure operating. We know that the Barzanis and the Talibanis killed each other, they're both crooks and all of that, but it sort of reminds me of Chicago politics, or Philadelphia <laughs> politics, or New York politics. Uh, you just have to sort of grow out of that. What can we learn from that? I mean, they have free elections. In Suleimani, uh, the Talibanis have been voted out. Uh, the so-called uh, new parties coming in uh, a little bit later this spring. Uh, the same sort of thing is operating elsewhere in the country. That's the only safe place in the whole of the, mm -hmm. the, the Middle East where you can go physically. And it's booming uh, in terms of economics, jobs, and education, and everything. Why don't we do we? Why doesn't the United States do more about trying to figure out what happened right there with all these crooks yeah. uh, and magnify it. Oh, anyone want to respond on that? <laughs> <laughs> I hate to okay. say what happened right might be those who stayed out. Yeah. You know, we encourage them to revolve after Iran. Yeah, sure. Yeah, she was saying that we stayed out of it in a way. We, we did not have the same relationship. And the Kurds also because after 19, well in the spring of 1991, when uh, there was the no-fly zone and the assistance to them to go back after they had had to flee up into Turkey and over into Iran, there was a sense of goodwill 
toward the American presence, that the American presence was there to help them, not to rule them. So a very different attitude there. Thanks, uh, everyone. I had three <laughs> quick questions, I hope. Um, and okay, I don't know if we, we, we may be coming to the end of the discussion. I hope that's okay. Yeah. To uh, Heather and Noah, and I think to all, but I'm just interested to hear your answers to this question. I can follow up on email. When you think of historians, when you think of political scientists or sociologists that are based in the region, broadly defined, who are wrestling with these same issues, um, who are the leading names and scholars that come to mind, the ones that you've come to rely on? Either sort of related to your work, and and you know the the nature of the especially the historical debate I think can can be very political in a place like that, uh, and, and you know broadly defined in the region. I, one thing that's challenged my own thinking in the discourse is just this the label Muslim world or Arab world because I think it's very rich. But who who comes to mind if Anne and Elizabeth as well have. Uh, 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 responses to that. So that's the first question. The second, we kind of mentioned with the Pope um, going uh, later this spring um, and meeting with the leaders, uh, with, the, with the Orthodox Pope in Jerusalem, I think. What, what are the expectations for that meeting? I know President Obama's meeting with the Pope on his way to Saudi Arabia. Um, but also for the, both the historians as well, have there been other examples where this sort of engagement has or has not worked? And Elizabeth, you know, on that second question, just I know in Turkey there was a recent uh, meeting of all the Eastern Orthodox leaders and whether, you know, they're really so fundamentally challenged with the difficulties they have on theology and other things, but is there a coming together in the way that some people have talked about it in hope um, uh, with, with this overall visit? And then the last one, and Anne, you can just punt on this if you, it, I'm not putting you on a spot, but I'm reading, rereading your article in Middle East Policy on constitutions. And it's not related to this discussion, but something that I think it was Rami said, trying to draw this all together yeah. uh, in terms of the debate. He's very hopeful about the constitutional debates that are happening in Tunisia. And again, all of these questions, if you want to play on it, because I think... Um, but how would you relate some of our discussions today to what you were analyzing? And in your article, just to summarize the way I saw it, was you, you looked at the different sequencing of uh, the approaches in Libya versus Tunisia versus Egypt post-2011 in the constitutional process. And um, although you weren't trying to tackle or deal with this issue of religious uh, rights for religious freedoms, naturally I think the, the concept comes into sort of the substance of the, the, the quality of these constitutions. So how do you think about that and how it's affected? And again, if you don't, I put you on the spot and I didn't warn you, but I wanted to raise that, so thanks. Okay, there was many different things. Do you want to go first? Okay, I'll start first, since mine is the broad overview question. So one of the most important thinkers right now writing about um, late Ottoman and post-Ottoman Christian communities is Bruce Masters at Wesleyan University. So he really started to question some of the assumptions about uh, the historical relevance of millet, millet as a system of administration and some of the tensions among Christians. And one thing that he does that's really important, which goes back to Elizabeth's point, is he actually connects the Balkans and what we now think of as the Middle East by thinking of a unified Ottoman zone. So he's his work is really important. Some older work, which I feel has not really been surpassed, is by two French demographers, Philippe Farguez and Yusuf Corbage, who've analyzed changes in both Christian and Jewish populations in different regions and studying how political events affected social demographics. 
And so their work, I think, is really original. There's a spate of studies coming out in what we could call Christian studies or mission studies, which is really refreshing because for a long time, if, we, if there were anything that we would call Christian studies, it was a kind of very narrow church history focusing on church elites and matters of doctrine. Whereas now what we're seeing is a recognition of Christian peoples as you know, uh, plural, internally pluralistic, engaged in society, um, invoking religion in certain ways and not in others and so on. So I think we're entering a, a new period of vitality there. Um, and some of that work is also recognizing the politicization of Christian communities in the context of sectarianism. Mm -hmm. People like Usama Makdisi, mm -hmm. um, Noah Menchin, Laura Robson, Benjamin White working on Syria and others. And I, but I think in general that in all of our studies we can really take a cue from the scholarship on Jewish history because I think Jewish social history of the Middle East has been far more creative than Christian social history uh, by attending to ordinary, the history of ordinary people and, um, and, and small communities and case studies. So, and there are par important parallels in Islamic State policies towards Jewish communities historically and how different communities adapted or resisted or worked with um, Muslim neighbors around them. So the work of Joel Bainan, Alon Rodrigue, Emily Gottreich, and others can offer um, a model for the kinds of scholarship that historians and political analysts can hopefully do more with regard to Christian communities. Since we're on bibliography, do you want to? <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure I can add a whole. I'm not sure I can add a whole lot to that list, um, except with the with respect to Mandate Palestine. There has also been. Uh, uh, a whole spate of books that have come out recently or that are forthcoming. Um, Michelle Campos, I mentioned before, Abigail Jacobson, Jonathan Gribbets has a book coming out, I believe, later this year, um, all about the British, oftentimes the end of the Ottoman period to the early British period and, and the um, major upheavals during that time. So I think those are important. And uh, yeah, other than that, and covered them well. Except that you left out your own name on the mission. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's her own book. It's really important. Yeah. And Paul Sedra, I might add, as well. Oh, yeah, cool. Yeah, just a quick, uh, I think the other thing is the move in the direction away from church history to talk about um, Christian communities in the Middle East, and there is a move towards greater interdisciplinary, cross-disciplinarity and political scientists and, and uh, sociologists, anthropologists coming in um, to do some really interesting work. Um, I, I would have also mentioned your work in Bruce Masters as well, but um, Anthony, Anthony O'Malley, I think I mentioned to you, who's um, in the UK, who does a lot of work, he's published just a lot on uh, on uh, Eastern Christians, um, and then also a, a really interesting book again from a political science perspective that does exactly what you talked about, uh, treating you know the former Byzantine, former Ottoman space, basically Bosnia through Palestine. Um, uh, she's a sociologist, Mary Layoun, uh, out at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, she does a lot of gender work as well, but I think it's it's very interesting. And then finally, someone called Mario Apostolov, who also looks at the role of religion and security in southeastern Europe and uh, and in, in the Near East. His work, I think, is also very interesting. Again, it deals with religion, but more from a um, you know a traditional security perspective, but nonetheless looks at this broader post-Byzantine, post-Ottoman space uh, as a as a kind of um, full unit. Did you have another question that also related to There was the Pope. The, the other one was related to just the Pope's. Uh, oh, the Pope's. 
ecumenical, patriarch, and oh. all, you know. Oh, yeah, I mean, I mean yeah. what, what, the minimal things that I can say about that. I mean, the, the reason the proximate cause for their visit, it's in uh, May, I think it's uh, 24th through, through 26th, the proximate cause for the visit is the 50th year anniversary when um, Pope Paul and uh, ecumenical patriarch Athena Gores lifted the mutual excommunications between the Orthodox and the Roman Catholic Church, and the idea is, uh, you know, to move that ball forward. I think, you know, the the urgent kind of, um, you know, reason be behind it is to address the, the question of the eradication of Christians in the region, and whether or not through Roman Catholic and Orthodox cooperation that, um, you know, there can be, uh, you know, re reconciliation in the broader church, uh, the three major denominations, but also some kind of effort to bring greater attention, unified attention to the, um, the urgent plight of Christians on the ground. Um, and also I know that there is gonna be a discussion about the highly fragmented <coughs> nature of Christians on the ground and ways that, um, what, are the, what have been the political consequences of that? I mean, certainly the ecclesiological and ecclesiastical, but what have been the, the political consequences of that? And I think that's supposed to somehow transfer, uh, you know, magically to broader, Father, we were talking about this before, Roman Catholic Orthodox, um, you know, collaboration around the world, you know, sort of discussion and activism. So, I yeah, I could first give an anecdote on uh, the, two, the two previous popes, uh, Pope Pius, I guess, came to Cairo in the spring of 2000, and I was living there at the time, and the, um, the government and Al-Azhar uh, welcomed him greatly, and he gave a big public address in the stadium, and many Muslims came to the address, and people were on the street. The really complicated politics was with the other Christian denominations, so that uh, the Coptic patriarch that was very fraught to have the Catholic Pope, pope coming, and also for the um, Orthodox Church. So the, he had to go to them, he had to go to the Coptic Patriarchate, to meet there with him. They didn't come to the um, airport you know, to meet him, whereas Al-Azhar and government officials did. And similarly with the Orthodox, I think he had to go all the way to St. Catherine's in Sinai to meet there. He, they couldn't come to him. So these things become very, very fraught. It was extremely interesting as somebody who's Unitarian and watching all this with great interest. <laughs> but um, on your comment, you know, it's, uh, part of what I wrote related to the order in which the constitutional processes took place, but that's in the three countries, but that's a kind of mechanical thing, so it's, I don't think it's the decisive thing. I think, however, the fact that in particularly Tunisia, um, although they had a very long drawn out process, they elected their assembly in what, uh, the fall of 2011, and they've just agreed to the constitution now, um, and it went through some very fraught period. There were two aspects, well, several aspects that kept it going. One thing, the uh, governing structure they tried to do is what was called the Troika. So it wasn't just al-Nahda, the more Islamist group, having exclusive power, though there were times when it was accused of having too much power. But you had another political movement, you could say, came out of the trade union movement, another political movement coming out somewhat of the human rights uh, community, and they had to talk to each other through this entire process, even though there were moments that were very fraught, as when two leading figures were assassinated by 
um, extreme Islamists. And um, they kept talking. And in the article, I quote the number two in Al-Nahda, who had left it actually at one point and came back, where he said, we had never talked to each other before. We were living in an authoritarian environment. We were each in our own boxes. We didn't hear each other's views. We couldn't accept each other's views. And it's taken all of this time, in a way, for us to hear each other. Uh, so to have a process where that was possible, um, as against, say, um, Egypt, where they jumped straight to the elections, where it was very predictable that the Muslim Brotherhood was the best organized. It had all the grassroots people. It had programs. I knew people who voted for the Brotherhood for Parliament um, who said, well, all the other people are individuals with views, but the Brotherhood has a platform. They have a program. They'll have some concrete things they could do. Of course, that turned out to be hogwash. You know, the Renaissance plan was just kalamfadi. It's empty words, but um, but people thought, well, maybe that's the case. So there, we we need concrete things done to help us economically and socially. Um, and then, of course, they also had said they weren't going to run a presidential candidate, and they did. So some people who had been uh, pro voting for them for parliament were then very disillusioned. But then, when they came in, they did a constitution which was heavily skewed toward their and the Noor party, the Salafi party's viewpoint and the others dropped out of it. Um, and so that became skewed. And now today we have another constitution where there was a 50-person committee writing it, and only one person was Islamist from the Noor party. The Islamists were totally ex excluded. So it was not the process that the uh, Tunisians went through. And maybe the uh, Libyans will go through. Their issues are more. Um, in a way ethnic, you could say, with the Amazigh and the Tebu and all these other groups, uh, though there is an Islamist dimension to it. They are just now, have just elected the 60-person body, but it's missing some people because they were boycotts, um, that will work on the Constitution. So they are not even started yet. Yeah. Right. Um, I think we're going to take this opportunity to end our discussion. Uh, I'd like to start by thanking everyone for coming. I, I think this was a real interesting uh, day. I, I'm glad so many people came and stayed and saw uh, our great panelists. And I'd like to particularly thank our three panelists and our moderator. Noah, thank you very much. It was great meeting you. Elizabeth, Heather, and Anne, thank you so much.